Hello and welcome in once again to the Ducks Rising podcast with your host QB11. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Doug? I'm good and I am, of course, Doug Scott, your other host. So we're here to talk about, first and foremost, the Ducks win over Eastern Washington in convincing fashion. 70-14 to 14, uh, in a game that was over in the first quarter, I'd say. Uh, maybe just talk about what what we liked, what we didn't like, and we can get more specific and you know on both sides of the ball after that. But why don't you jump in with your first thoughts? Uh, first thoughts was that like a lot a lot of the things that we didn't do when it were executed at a particularly high level against Georgia were um, obviously executed at a higher level given the competition. But um, I think angles to the ball um, overlap in regards to uh, leveraging the ball to the sideline or back towards help in the middle. Uh, I, I just think that guys were playing at a at a higher level and were a little bit more um, polished, and so I think those are kind of the incremental steps that you're looking to take as you kind of work through the first couple of weeks of the season. Yeah, I mean it was certainly exactly what you wanted to see out of a game like this, right? You're you're way more talented. It's an overmatched opponent. What you want to see is to come out, put them away early, get a lot of reps for second stringers, third stringers, young guys. And really, uh, you know, dominate the football game in convincing fashion, and that was something that Oregon, frankly, has struggled with the last couple of years against um, lesser opponents. I mean, Stony Brook last year, for an example, was seventeen-seven at halftime, and 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 you know, really was competitive way into the third quarter. And you know, it was good to see Oregon come out, especially after you know the the week one debacle, and really, really just leave no doubt. Um, obviously that's what they should do, but the fact that they did it and did it in, in very convincing fashion was a good sign. Yeah. I think like over the years, like you you referenced with Stony Brook last year, we haven't always performed like the team that was substantially more talented and better, um, than, than, than the FCS team. And so for us to come out and handle business the way we did leave absolutely no doubt. I mean, we scored on our first nine offensive possessions and, and that the 10th one was just like deep garbage time where it's Jay Butterfield and a bunch of walk-ons out there and really just trying to end the game uh, at that point. So like for us to come out and execute at a high level, I mean, Bo Nix had the most efficient game of his career going 28 of 33 for 277 and five touchdowns with no interceptions. Um, Like when you're scoring on every drive and when you're giving up a hundred yards before garbage time, that's, that's a good performance, and so if you're looking to bounce back from a pretty ugly Georgia game uh, to execute cleanly and do exactly what you are expected to do against a team that you're a lot better than is a good is a good start. Yeah, for sure. I, I think if you're gonna, if anyone is gonna nitpick or or find things to to maybe like to see improved, you know, I could think of a couple on on the offensive side of the ball. There really wasn't any deep deep throws. Um, and maybe that was a you know part of the game plan or or just taking what the defense was giving us, but you know it was a fairly you know dink and dunk our way down the field very easily. Uh, you know there wasn't like a lot of resistance, although we did have some a decent amount of third and longs in the first half or third and mediums at least. We converted them all, um, but we didn't really take any deep shots and we didn't really hit any deep shots in the game. And and maybe that's something you'd like to see a little more of. I know Dillingham I think referenced more explosive plays, it's something he'd like to see too. So. Thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Eastern Washington literally just copy and pasted Georgia's game plan. Like, they played a two-eye shell. They weren't going to let us get anything over the top. And they were going to make us earn it in long drives. And the difference was is that we've got really good players who break tackles. And, like, we were averaging, like, eight or nine yards a play. And we were just moving the ball down the field and – anywhere from six to nine plays and scoring a touchdown every drive. So um, I think they were doing a pretty good job and making a concerted effort to keep everything in front. Uh, and I also don't think that there's a whole lot of pressure in a game like that when you're, when you're executing at a high level uh, and moving the ball as well as we were to open it up and show your favorite shot plays a week before you play a big t- a big time game at home. So uh, I agree. I'd, I'd like to see us push the ball vertically to guys like Dante Thornton uh, and and Troy Franklin uh, earlier and, and more often going forward. But I don't have any issues with us um, executing at a high level and just kind of working the offense up and down the field for four quarters against a team we're a lot better than. Uh, one thing that really was like kind of comforting to see was 
how we handled like end of quarter and end of, end of half situations. Like I feel like Lanning did a really good job at the end of the second quarter, end of the first half, using our timeouts, getting us in a position to maximize the clock and get as many opportunities as possible at the end zone. And we needed it because it took the last play of of the half to get in the end zone. Um, and then also at the end of the first half or the first quarter, we're we're in a situation where uh, we rush, get up to the line, looks like we're about to run tempo, and we're just trying to get a cheap five yards uh, with a hard count as opposed to just kind of moseying over to the sideline and ending the quarter. I think it's it shows that we're a well-coached and opportunistic team, that we're, we're attacking in those types of situations, and that our team and our coaches have the wherewithal um, to put us in a situation to gain an advantage uh, in, in situations that kind of fall between the margins. Yeah, I, speaking of Franklin, I, I mean, 10 catches, 85 yards on a touchdown, uh, you know, that touchdown at the end of the first half that he really had to had to fight to get in. I mean, I really like the way that they used him, uh, you know, just running a lot of a lot of intermediate routes, uh, catching the ball and then giving him an opportunity to to make guys miss and make a play. And, and he certainly did uh, make a number of them in that scenario. And, and it really kind of the game plan really seemed to pick up off. I mean, you know, we talked post Georgia game. We were kind of talking about like you could see, you could see what the goal of the offense was in that Georgia game, right? And it didn't turn into points, but it, you know you could see the plays developing. You could see what they were trying to do, you know, with getting the guy, getting the guys the ball, um, you know, on the run, on the move. And obviously Georgia had the athletes to to shut them down, and and Eastern Washington certainly didn't. But everything that you saw, you know, in the Georgia game you saw here, right? It was, it was just obviously against a, a much inferior competition. I also think the Ducks played a little better. Yeah, I think it was good to get home, and I think we just cleaned up a lot of execution errors. I mean, there were still things, like you noted, there was a, probably a few more third downs than we probably would have liked to have in the first half. Um, some, some execution errors in, in certain situations on second down. and um, But I, I think that overall, like, it's kind of hard to complain when your starting quarterback has five incompletions on 32 attempts and zero interceptions. There was one ball that was certainly interceptable, but Terrence Ferguson just made a great play on the ball and then went and scored a touchdown. So um, as long as – I feel really comfortable with this offense to the point where as long as Bo isn't turning the ball over, I think that we can score on pretty much anybody. Yeah, I, I think we, we kind of said that after the Georgia game, which kind of sounded crazy probably to a lot of our listeners, but – you could see the makings of of a really highly efficient and high scoring offense, and I think I think you're right. I think we will be able to move the ball, and I think we will be able to score a lot of points. There's there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of weapons, and and I think this offense under Dillingham is really spreading the ball around. And we'll talk about that I think coming up here next. But I mean, to a ton of playmakers on both out of the backfield and in the tight end core and in the receiver core. Uh, there's just so many weapons, and I love that we're we're spraying it around and and giving everyone a chance to eat. And I mean, you brought up Ferguson. I mean, that guy. I mean, he had two touchdowns uh, in this game, and he looks like an unstoppable force at tight end out there. Yeah, I'm not going to read too much into him physically dominating against a team like Eastern Washington, but the the skill set's clearly there. The physical profile's there. Um, just seeing him get get targets and and kind of make some plays because, frankly, with it, this was a very different situation than game one. We ran 89 plays on offense, um, whereas like prior to garbage time against Georgia, we only had about 30. So it, there wasn't a lot of opportunities to get guys touches last last week prior to kind of the game being over, whereas in this game there was a bountiful, bountiful plenty of, of opportunities to get guys the ball. I mean, we had 14 different guys uh, record a status pass catchers and um, we had we had six different guys take handoffs out of the backfield, so a lot of opportunities to evaluate everybody, and really everybody that got got a touch answered the call. So that's as much as you can ask. Uh, and I think that despite the fact that it's against Eastern Washington, it's pretty pretty clear to see that there's talent at the skill position players, and and we're gonna have guys that are uh, difficult to handle in space moving forward in the schedule. Yeah, looking at the running backs, I mean, Oregon continued the running back by committee approach uh, once again that they they had against Georgia as well. Uh, like you said, six guys carried. They're not all running backs, obviously. James didn't play this game. Um, I think he had a minor injury that he might have been dealing with, but might be back next week. But you know, the four primary running backs all split duties per, fairly evenly, and then you know we had I think Hudson and Seven got some carries. You know, kind of on end around kind of plays as well, but. 
do you do you see Oregon continuing the running back by committee approach? You think that maybe a rotation will settle in as we get more into the meat of the schedule? I mean, unless obviously injuries could force that too. Um, but what did you see? I know last week you really liked dollars. You know, who did you see in the running back room that really stood out to you in this game? I like them all, and so I don't like there. There isn't a clear guy to cut out of the top four to get it down to a three man rotation. Yeah, and so. It seems that there's a three there's a three man rotation on primary downs, and then Dollars is playing a lot of third down situations. Um, but like Dollars is fine on first and second down. Like all of those guys can do pretty much everything. I mean, at this point, I'm I'm a little bit suspect of Bucky's ability to catch the ball out of the backfield. Um, three drops now on on three targets through two weeks, but um, I I just I don't know who you cut out. I don't. They all they're all good players. I mean, Irving averaged 9.3 yards per carry, Dollars 6.4, Cardwell 6.9. Um, Whittington got a lot of carries in the red zone, so his, his average was a little bit lower. But like when you have a bunch of backs averaging over six yards a carry, it's like uh, I don't know how you would pick one that's underperforming to take out of the game. Uh, I, I, overall, I think Cardwell is probably the most talented guy still, but it's just a matter of... I think this is the best situation for all four. And they might not realize it right now, just based on the fact that they probably all would like to get a few more carries now than they are. But as we saw, even in this game, like Whittington went out with a little ankle. He was hobbled by a minor ankle, and Cardwell got a little banged up at one point. Like, these guys are not all going to be available all the time in every game. And so the fact that we have four guys that we can really count on and play ball with means that we're never going to be in a situation where we're down to like one back and really having to ride a guy into the dirt and, and put too many miles on his legs. Cause I think these guys probably fairly all have NFL uh, or, or, or pro aspirations and keeping the mileage down and keeping them fresh is the best thing for everybody. Yeah. I mean, and that fresh legs really could pay dividends. You get to the second half of the season and people are banged up and, and, you know, you got a guy, you know, in other teams or other seasons, you know, some guys got 200 carries on them and, you know, you're just banged up at that point, right? Even though you're playing, right? You're not injured, but you're banged up and you're worn down. And if these guys are all keeping fresh and all rotating every game, that that's going to pay dividends for Oregon in the second well, half of the season. And and while touches were down a little bit for these guys, probably in this game because we got into garbage time so early and walk-ons were getting a lot of touches and uh, they were, they were trying to, again, just keep guys fresh. When you count receptions, these guys were all basically getting 10 touches a game right now. And so four guys getting the ball 10 times a game, all with different skill sets. Uh, I, I, I don't know that it's a bad – It's I don't think it's a problem as long as the players stay on board and bought in. Uh, again, I think ideally three is probably a little bit easier to manage. But more times than not, in the flow of a game, it will be three just based on someone getting nicked up. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I, I think I'd like to see the fan base get a little bit more on board with with this approach as well. I mean, you see some people out there, you know, calling for this guy or calling for that guy to play more. And, and I, I think, you know, fans could really recognize the benefits of what the coaching staff is doing with this running back rotation and how that actually benefits, you know, like you said, these players longer term, but then the team as a whole. And, and you know, let, let's appreciate the fact that we have four guys who all deserve to play. That's a good thing. Yeah, I mean... It's it's also like it's a similar thing on defense. Like I saw, I had somebody tweet at me on Saturday, like why is Flo coming out of the game so often, or why is Sewell coming out of the game so often? It's like staying fresh on defense. Like we're we're playing even in meaningful time, we're probably playing twenty two guys on defense right now. Um, and so having that kind of quality depth is going to be a really important thing for us as we get deeper into the season because this is football and guys get banged up and having guys that can that can substitute in and out and and, and maintain uh cohesion and give you give you a good quality look is really really important and so i think that taking the first couple weeks of the season to really start to 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 develop to develop the the second and third string guys and get them involved and keep guys engaged and developing as the season go goes along only pays dividends in future seasons and, and later and later into this season as we go down the road uh, getting into Pac-12 play. So I think we'll probably see some pared-down rotations this week against a quality opponent in BYU versus what we saw against Eastern Washington, but I don't think that that running back is going to be a spot where it's pared down. Yeah, and speaking of those 
those reps, I mean, offensive line is another position because of the luxury of, well, two reasons. One, you know, uh, know, Ryan Walk sat out, so that gave uh, Marcus Harper, you know, the start, and he played, you know, what, 80 snaps or something. He pretty much played the whole game, and and I think that that's an invaluable experience for for a guy who could be starting for us for the next couple of seasons to get that many reps and and then you know Josh Connerly played a lot, Dave Auli, Kawika Rogers got in like so those rep JPJ was back and I saw he he played guard and center I believe so I, and that's all... was out there too like, yeah there, everyone was playing like we we got a little bit of a, a peek at what at literally might be our offensive line next year when when it was from left to right it was Connerly Harper JPJ Kawika Rogers and um, uh, Jarmio at right tackle. And they looked pretty damn good. They looked like a Pac-12 offensive line. And, and some of those guys are, are true freshmen. So um, you got you got you to like our offensive line depth where it stands right now. I feel like we could play with those guys if we had to today. So Yeah, uh, that's a great luxury to have. And just getting them actual game reps is just huge. Like, that's something like. It's so good to see that again. We missed that. Um, yeah, and, and hopefully this isn't the last time that we can put a team away and get in the garbage time because these reps add up. Like when you saw Georgia, like yeah, those guys were some of those guys were second and third teamers last year, but they all played as many snaps snaps as the starter because when when you're a dominant football team and you put people away, your your backups and your underclassmen are getting really valuable developmental snaps that other teams don't get. And so, and then again, like that, that pays off as you move into future seasons. Yeah. So speaking of, um, you know, both the backup quarterbacks got a little bit of run. I don't think we saw enough of Jay Betterfield, you know, and I think he just handed the ball off so we can't really speak on him, but you know, Ty Thompson got a couple of drives and I think threw a couple of balls, probably not a ton to go off of there, but you know, maybe make a couple of thoughts about what you saw out of Ty. No, I mean Ty looks more comfortable. He looks in more command. I just I think the system is really quarterback friendly. Ultimately, I think that um, he he looked comfortable and like the thing with Ty is that every time he plays, like his physical prowess pops. Like you see the arm talent, you see the size. They're like none of Ty's problems or need for development is physical. He can do all that stuff right now. It's just him continuing to get reps and grow within the system and. Uh, learn to protect the ball and get through his reads faster and uh, that that's just going to take time and so again like every time that we can put a team away and get our backups in and get tie quality reps in game situation where it's live and he doesn't have a red jersey on that's all going to be helpful for him so I was really happy with what Ty showed I mean obviously just like the carrying velocity on his far hash throws and uh, it was good to see Caleb Chapman finally kind of get out there. I know he's been banged up the last week or two of camp, so um, there, there was a, there was a lot of positives to draw from from the backups plan. Yeah, that the one throw that I recall from Ty, you know, I, I think he, he kind of rolled out right and then threw back across the left to the sideline. Wide guy was wide open, right? Um, but there was a lot of arm strength in that throw, and and that was like you said, his physical abilities are not. <laughs> are not really in question. So, and I like the fact too, that we're not just putting the backup quarterback in and then telling him to hand the ball off, you know, three straight plays, which I think we've seen sometimes in the past, right? Like it doesn't really benefit him all that well and his development all that well. If you don't actually let him, you know, go through the progressions and throw live balls in a live game. So I like yeah. that we did. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. I think it's just a matter of, you got to get guys reps. You got to give guys opportunities to play and, can't can't play with uh, training wheels on. You gotta let them go, and so uh, otherwise you're not really preparing them for anything that uh, anything of of uh, importance. I think we've covered the offense pretty well. Anything on defense that that you saw that stuck out? Well, I think we played better on the edge. I think our safeties and corners did a better job on the perimeter defeating blocks. I mean, we obviously Bridges got the interception, and that was almost returned for a touchdown. That. He then fumbled, and Casey Rogers got the uh, assisted touchdown on, so that was cool. Um, but guys like DJ Johnson, I noticed when I was watching the film after the game, just playing better off a of box, being more disciplined. Um, I, I I just thought that everybody kind of just trusted every. Uh, it's easy to do when you're so much better than your opponent, but each individual per- player on the defense was doing their job and their job only 
and trusting the guy next to them to, to take care of theirs. And when everybody is doing that and executing at a high level, it's really hard to move the ball on us. So hopefully that's a lesson learned and they can continue to do that and move forward. And um, obviously there's some things that still need improvement, like our, our ability to close when we get free runs at the quarterback um, is still a problem. There's, I think situationally, we there were some things that we need to work on. Um, when we get those those condensed formation looks, like they like they scored their first touchdown on, uh, making sure that we're handing off all those rub routes so that we're not getting picked on them, uh, and, and creating easy easy free access throws for the quarterback will be something to kind of keep working on because if that shows to be a weakness for for your secondary, teams are going to do it every week. Um, so stuff like that, but overall, I was really pleased with how everyone played. Um, it was good to see some of the young, young pups get some run in, in the, in the latter half of the game. Uh, guys like Ben Roberts, like Ben Roberts is a really, really strong dude. Um, plays off blocks. Well, good to see Sir Mel's get in there. Uh, in the secondary, we got to see our first reps of Kamari Terrell and Damon David and, uh, even Jaleel Tucker and, and, uh, Darren Barkin's getting some runs. So. Good. All of that's valuable. I think that as we move forward in the season, some of those young guys might end up playing um, more serious roles in the primary rotation. Uh, so, get, again, getting more reps is always a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, and it was it was good to see. I, I shout out to Sermels for that uh, knockdown pass that he had. I thought his he was pretty stout there at nose tackle, and and credit to him. I. I I honestly didn't expect, uh, you know, to see much out of him this first season. I thought he really needed to do a lot of work in the in the strength and conditioning program, and I think he did. Like his body looks a lot different now than it did six months ago. And you know, obviously, I don't. He's probably deep in the rotation. You know, there's a lot of people in front of him on that in that D line. But you know, credit to him for getting in there and yeah, and doing I mean, what he's he, supposed to do. He's got the right frame, and he's super long, and uh, he showed some some good quickness and range. Like he was chasing plays down and playing with a good motor. Um, need him to come out of his hips and play with a little bit more violence immediately off the snap. But that's something that's learned, um, and, and that will come as he becomes stronger in the weight room. Whereas I think Ben Roberts is maybe a little bit more physically developed from a strength standpoint. He's kind of snapping out and and really getting in guys. Um, I honestly watching him, it's like. I think he ultimately, because of his height, is going to end up playing inside a nose tackle primarily. Whereas I think Mel's, I know he's been kind of pigeonholed as a nose tackle based on how heavy he was in high school. But if he can continue to trim and get leaner and um, work on his body, I think he's going to kind of play more of that four-eye, five-technique defensive end. Uh, and I think they both are going to be, like, they both have the ability to become good players. So... Excited to see how those guys continue to develop. I like. I was really surprised by Roberts. Like, if we had to throw Roberts in tomorrow, I think he would actually play okay, um, which is good to know. But considering that, like, I mean, he's buried behind Keanu Williams and uh, obviously Jordan Riley and uh, Taimani and a, and a bunch of other guys. But just see, seeing true freshmen play with that kind of violence and coordination is is an encouraging thing uh, this early in the process. Well, and with Popo out for the year, you know, you never know if Unite need that depth. So it's good to know that you have players who can who can at least be a replacement level player and give you quality snaps. You know, ten or fifteen snaps a game if you need it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just I think that as we get late into games, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe once we kind of get into the meat of the schedule a little bit, if guys like him are playing a couple snaps a game in more meaningful time because he, again, he just. He didn't look out of place from a physicality standpoint. Now, again, it was late in the game, and Easter Washington had kind of broken by that point. But um, I, I think that that's going to translate. He just needs to continue to work on playing with his hands and uh, and learning to read blocks. And I'm sure Tuioti is getting him right every day in practice. So obviously, the next opponent is going to be quite a bit different. And you know, I think one of the things you mentioned is you know, the edge play and particularly in the passing situation, you know, we're not really getting home, uh, getting home on the sacks, right? We get pressure, but we, we, we don't seem to be able to get home and actually complete the play. And that was something that I think had been a problem last year and, and maybe even the year before as well. You know, uh, I just remember seeing Oregon all last year, like 
getting getting pressure on quarterbacks, but not actually getting a sack. And I, I saw a lot more of that uh, this past weekend, which is a little bit a little bit frustrating. Um, you know what I'll say though, Doug? Like watching that game and look and, and just watching the edge players a little bit more closely the second time through. They, Eastern Washington was trying to get the ball out as quickly as possible. Like they got to keep that starting quarterback in one piece for the for the season for them that actually matters. Like this is just them That's going amazing. on tour to collect paychecks that help pay for the for the rest of the season. Yeah. Um. And so, but guys like again, Swinson isn't playing a lot early down situations. He looks really good rushing the passer. Um. DJ Johnson, like again, didn't get home. It didn't show up in the stat sheet. Well, he did get one sack, but his best reps actually were on some reps where they got the ball out quickly in their in their quick game. Um, but like showing showing some serious advancement in his understanding of how to rush, um, some different some different uh, inventory of moves, all things that we we want to see. I think that will start to manifest on the stat sheet as we start to play teams that actually are trying to beat us and are going to drop back when 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 we have a lead and try to push the ball vertically. Um, but if teams are just going to throw screens and get the ball out quickly, it's going to be pretty tough for us to get home with the rush. That's fair. That's fair. I know, you know, BYU quarterback is, is a pretty mobile guy, so we're going to have to stay disciplined in our rush lanes too. Yeah, I think looking forward to BYU a little bit here, I don't know that you're going to want guys really selling out on the rush because all you're doing is creating lanes for a really explosive runner. I think it's going to be more of pressing the pocket, condensing the pocket, making him uncomfortable because there's less space, but keeping him in the pocket. He's he's a good he's a good passer. I'm definitely not saying he's a one-dimensional player, but if you're going to lose to Jaron Hall, especially without Nakua and Romney, I'd much rather lose to him from inside the pocket than getting out on the edge um, and, and creating problems and getting free yards in the as a runner. Makes sense. We'll cover that in more depth in our BYU preview. Anything more you want to say about Oregon in this game? No, again, I, I'm just really pleased with the bounce back. I think you could, they had, they had Dan Lanning mic'd up for this game and there, there was a common theme like with the stuff that they showed of him talking to the team and it was just us against us. And I think throughout that game, all the way deep into the fourth quarter, despite a 56 point lead, Oregon was still playing hard and guys were focused and guys were trying to get the most out of the reps that were being allotted to them. And I think that that says a lot about the team culture and the, um, the, de- the depth that's been developed where guys are out there trying to earn their keep and, and show themselves and put out good film um, because there was not a lot of plays of guys loafing uh, as we got deep into that game. It's good. All right, well, let's turn our attention to some scores from around. We'll start with the Pac-12 first, and then we'll go to National after that. Um, and I, some of these I'm just going to breeze through, but if you if there's a game you particularly want to talk about, jump in. Um, obviously, Utah beat up on Southern Utah 73-7 to in a, in a game that probably looked very similar to the Oregon game. Not much of note there. No, I got uh, nothing. I didn't even bother watching the highlights of that game, if I'm honest with you. No, me neither. Uh, Colorado continues to be just a terrible, terrible football team, and they got blown out by Air Force 41-10. to Yep, I uh, I won the cover on that, and I will be betting on Minnesota to cover against Colorado next week. They're going 0-12. I think that's a safe bet all year long. <laughs> yeah, I will be betting against Colorado pretty much every week from now until the season's over. Um, Cal Bears are two and zero. They they uh, squeaked out a twenty to fourteen win at home against UNLV. Yeah, and they play Notre Dame this week. I'm really interested to see how that game goes. I don't I don't think Cal's going to win, but the only team that's like like every conference and apparently the independents have one team like this where they're just so offensively incompetent that like way worse teams can stay in games with them. Like Iowa for the Big Ten, Notre Dame from the independents, Cal from the Pac-12. Uh, Texas A&M from the SEC. I'm not really sure who the who the team is from the ACC. Maybe maybe Virginia, based on their offensive showing on Saturday. But like, yeah, Cal is setting football back about 30 years with their offense right now, and uh, it's pretty tough to watch. Uh, but they're not setting it. If they're setting it back 30 years, then Iowa is setting it back 50 years. Well, Iowa is just deciding not to play offense. 
Yeah. They're punting on first down, I'm pretty sure. They're just like, well, our defense is good, so we don't care. I, uh, I don't I don't even that that situation is like how does a father fire his son? Does he yeah. fire his son? Does he demote him? How does that work? I will we, we will soon find out, or maybe not, I guess. <laughs> uh UCLA continues its its uh, band of cupcakes uh, beat up on Alabama State forty five to seven. Yeah, kind of what you'd expect. Um, flipping over uh, Arizona, uh, tough loss. Arizona, they uh, they lost thirty nine seventeen to Mississippi State in a game I, I thought would have been a little closer. I think it was a little closer early, and then I think Mississippi State just no. Kinda... That that game is a lot closer than the, than the scoreboard would tell you that it was. Uh, there was three three picks by Delora. Like there there was at one point in this game where it was twenty four seventeen, and they were driving. And Delora threw a pick that almost got returned for a touchdown. Like, uh, like if not for turnovers, I think that Arizona could keep the score tighter. Um, they got outgained, and obviously Mississippi State turned the ball over as well. Uh, but I, I think that Arizona actually played this game better than the the thirty nine to seventeen score would indicate. Yeah, and I think I mean I think through two weeks Arizona looks ahead of schedule, and and we thought they would be ahead of schedule anyway, and I think they even look ahead of where we thought they'd be. So, uh, you know that game, that Oregon at Arizona game is certainly one I know you're you're going to be at, and and you had circled as a potential upset watch, and and I certainly would not disagree with that. Yeah, no, I'm excited for that one, and uh, I think I'm going to hit that two and a half over on Arizona. So yeah, I feel really really good about that. <laughs> For you, um, staying with uh, Arizona State, uh, traveled to Oklahoma State, and actually, you know, Oklahoma State won thirty four seventeen. But does this tell us that Arizona State's maybe a better team than we thought they'd be, or maybe Oklahoma State isn't quite as good as we thought they'd be, or or what? Does it tell us anything? Well, I was not one of the people claiming that Arizona State was going like three and nine or two and ten. I there's still enough residual talent on that team to be competitive. And I think that they'll be really competitive against PAC 12 teams. Um, I don't think that they're going to go and knock off USC or Utah or anything like that, but against the like run of the mill PAC 12 team, Arizona state's got enough talent to be dangerous. And they were, they were in a position to be competitive in this game until pretty late. So uh, overall, I feel like that's a pretty solid showing for Arizona state on the road and a pretty tough place to play. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Washington Huskies moved to two and zero after beating up on the Portland State Vikings fifty two to six. Yeah, I mean we'll see what we're going to learn a lot about them this weekend. They haven't really played anyone yet, and so they're doing what they're supposed to be doing against uh, against inferior competition. As and that's really all you can ask at this point. So uh, really interested to see how they look on Saturday against Michigan State. Yeah, probably. The biggest surprise in the Pac-12 of the weekend was Washington State going to Camp Randall and knocking off 19th-ranked Wisconsin, 17 to 14, in in a game that was. You look at the stat sheet and it looks like Wisconsin wins going away, but they didn't. And and the the yeah, so Cougars pulled the upset for context. So Wisconsin had 22 first downs to Washington State's 10. Wisconsin was eight for 15 on third and down. For to Washington State's two for eleven, they outgain Wisconsin outgained Washington State four hundred one to two fifty three. I have absolutely no idea how Wisconsin managed to lose this game. Um, good for Washington State for capitalizing. They basically won this this game because of three big plays. But you can firmly count me out of the Cameron Ward like hype train bus like. He has been very – I don't even know if he's been average to this point. I feel like he's been like pretty mediocre. Uh, and I think that despite this win, they, they'll probably be 3-0 and when we go to play him in Pullman. I think Oregon's a multiple-score better team than Washington State after watching that game. Yeah, and I'll say for the record, I was never on the Cameron Ward hype train. Uh, I think coming up from that level to this level is is a huge jump and – I needed to see. I needed to see it before I was ready to anoint him. So I mean, there's still a lot of football to be played, but yeah, I mean, I I feel pretty comfortable that they'll get to like six and six or seven and five. But um, unless that offense gets a, it's like the least efficient air raid passing game I've seen in a long time. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, one more game, uh, probably the the best game in the in the Pac-12 slate. Oregon State goes down to Fresno State and and pulls off the victory, um, thirty-five thirty-two. And and for those who didn't see it, uh, the Beavers um, had basically time enough left for one play. They could have kicked the field goal to tie and sent it to overtime. And Jonathan Smith elected to go to go for the win instead, and he wildcatted his way into the end zone uh, for the victory. So Oregon State had absolutely no business winning this football game. Um, and they did what Oregon State teams do, and they crackerjacked their way into a W they didn't deserve. Uh, I have, I've seen a lot of hype about this Oregon State secondary and this Oregon State defense being better this year. I think that they're going to be in for a pretty rude awakening once Pac-12 play starts. Because 360 yards, so... <laughs> Chance Nolan still looks unbelievably, like, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what what word to use to categorize him, but he's he's not great. He made a couple plays on on a couple nice throws on their last drive to go win. Um, one to Luke Musgrave that I think was probably his best throw of the night. But I I don't I don't see it with them. They're they're not actually running the ball that well, despite the fact that their offensive line returns everybody off a of Joe Moore semifinalist last year. I don't know. They're going to have to get that that run game figured out before Pac-12 play starts. They they play USC here in two weeks, and I, I have them picked to win that game, but given the current state of the Oregon State offense, I'm not sure that I feel super confident in that pick. Yeah, I I, I mean, I think USC is going to score plenty in that game, um, and I don't think Oregon State's going to be able to keep up even against USC's uh, suspect defense, so. Uh, any other thoughts on Pac-12 play? I think I went through all the games. All right, well, let's move on to some of the national games. There wasn't a lot of great games. It's typical of Week 2. There's usually a couple of ranked versus ranked games. Not a lot of quality out there, but we had a couple of of major upsets that kind of added some spice to what otherwise could have been a very lackluster week. So let's start with one of those. The thundering herd uh, of Marshall go and knock off the Notre Dame Fighting Irish at home, of course, 26-21 to 21 Marshall in a game that uh, wasn't a fluke, in my opinion. They won by multiple scores. <laughs> like, Marshall owned them. It was like, it wasn't, like, it wasn't a dominant performance by Marshall, but, like, they, like, definitively won that game. Like, Notre Dame did not give it to them. They took it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, it, was, and, it only ended up being a five-point win, but Notre Dame got a like meaningless touchdown late in the game that made and, it look closer, yeah. And it wasn't even the best win for the Sun Belt Conference. No. Like you, have, no. You, have, you have App State going in and beating probably the second most incompetent offense only behind Iowa uh, in Texas A&M in College Station. Uh, in a game that f- had a final score of 17 to 14 with App State pulling it off. Um, Texas A&M managed nine whole first downs against a defense that gave up 63 points the week before to North Carolina. Texas A&M had 186 yards total. They ran, like, 30, they ran 39 plays to App State's 88 plays offensively. So in case you're wondering about why this old antiquated way of playing football is dumb. This is a perfect example. A team with substantially more talent should want a larger sample size to express said advantage as opposed to trying to condense the game and and create a, a, an environment where a team with substantially less ability can beat them. And that's what happened. They just, they, they slowed the game down. They tried to shorten it as much as possible. They created, put themselves in a situation where they were in a one-score game late, and they lost. And they absolutely deserved to lose. They were two for eight on third down. They only achieved nine first downs the entire game. Um, some of the worst quarterback... I watched some of this game. Some of the worst quarterback play by Haynes King I've seen in a long time. Like Braxton Burmeister-level bad quarterback play. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. I think they need to hire an offensive coordinator and move away from Jimbo as the play caller. Yeah, I I mean Jimbo Jimbo's system is antiquated. Everyone knows it but him. Uh he he's either too stubborn to to see it or too lazy or too prideful or something. Um but but yeah, I mean they only had eight possessions. Uh, and then that goes to your point. Like 
if you have a major talent advantage, you want eighteen possessions, not eight. Well, yeah, you you want it like if you have a if you have a much better team, the more plays you play, the better your team, like the better the odds are your team is going to express that advantage. And like here's here's the A and M drive chart: four plays, eighteen yards, punt; three plays, four yards, punt; or sorry, fumble; seven plays, seventy-five yards, touchdown. Is there one touchdown? One of their touchdown drives: three plays, four yards, punt; three plays, minus two yards, punt; six plays, eighteen yards, punt. Four plays, 29 yards, fumble. Zero plays, zero yards, touchdown. That must have been a defensive score. Uh, nine plays, 45 yards, missed field goal, end of game. Like you, they, they weren't sustaining anything. They weren't, ex- they weren't even trying to be explosive. I, I don't know what the solution is because it's, it's a twofold problem. Even if Jimbo hires an offensive coordinator to come in and bring in a new system, he also needs to partner that with a philosophy that they're not going to try to only run. 39 plays of offense in a 60-minute game. Like they need to pick up the pace. Their pace is half of the problem. It's not just the the system. Yeah, they had a they had a they had a kickoff return touchdown. So their their offense only managed the one scoring drive. Yeah, and then we'll swing over to uh, Nebraska really quick because they also took an L to the to the Sun Belt. Um, it was the retribution of Clay Helton. Uh, in Georgia Southern, beating Nebraska at home, forty-five to forty-two, in another game that was not a fluke. And the craziest part about this game to me is that they were like Georgia Southern is traditionally a triple option team. Clay, Clay Helton rolled in there, installed a spread offense, brought in a transfer quarterback that went thirty-seven to fifty-six for four hundred nine, and like like won the game for Georgia Southern. They were they were awesome. Like they like Georgia Southern had six hundred and forty two yards of offense <laughs> against Nebraska in Lincoln Memorial Stadium. I I don't I don't even know what to think about Nebraska. I mean, I was picking them to potentially. I think I did pick them to win the the, the Big Ten West. Which oh my god, I, I that was a terrible pick by me. And and obviously they fired Scott Frost after that game. And uh, I, I don't see how they couldn't. Uh, you know, they're zero and two. Two disastrous losses. They don't even look like a team that belongs on the field. Uh, I, I, I just, I'm dumbfounded. At what is going on in Nebraska? I mean, if they waited three more weeks, the buyout to fire Frost would have gone down fifteen million dollars. They couldn't, they couldn't even wait three more weeks. They had to get rid of him that quickly. Yeah, they, there's no, there's no way. Dollars. It, well, it's, it's it goes from fifteen to seven, but there's no way they're paying the full fifteen. They had to. They had to have agreed to some kind of compromise in principle. Like, just said, "Hey, you're fired, regardless. We will wait, or you can just take like eight or nine million now to get the hell out." And because it's his alma mater, I'm sure he just took whatever deal they offered to him. Um, just try to save some semblance of face. But yeah, it's it's a crazy situation. I like Clay Helton just thoroughly outcoached Scott Frost again, um, and. Like good for Clay Helton first and foremost. This is the one year anniversary of him getting fired by USC after losing to Stanford. Um and it seems that he's landed on his feet and has Georgia Southern moving in the right direction. So good to see for a, a guy that's generally really well known for, for being a really good person. Yeah, and you know, and I think I think Clay Helton's a pretty good football coach. Uh, I think the fit with USC was bad. He did he did win them their only packed 10, 12 title in like 13 years was, was one under his watch and he won a Rose bowl and, and I, it was a bad fit there and everyone wanted to run out of running him out of town. And it was, but I think he is a pretty good football coach and I think he's showing that. Yeah. I think I'm not sure that he's a great football coach, but I do think that um, the, the situation was just not, not workable at USC just given who hired him, and then the way that that AD left, and then kind of the dysfunction of that entire athletic department during his tenure. A lot of things that were outside of his control were also problems. Um, but I, ultimately, I just don't think he was fit, a fit for that school and that market. But um, I think he'll do well down there, and I think he'll end up getting another Power 5 job at some point here in the not-so-near future uh, if, if this result is any indication of what we can expect from Georgia Southern going forward. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and what a as you talked about, what a great Saturday for the Sun Belt Conference. I mean, three huge marquee wins. Almost well, no, not not almost four. 
but three three big ones. The hilar- the other hilarious thing was Duke beating. So this one is just kind of an off the wall. Like I don't think most of our listeners will care, but I got a kick out of this. So Duke goes to Chicago and beats Northwestern thirty one to twenty three. Like Duke was arguably the worst team in in FBS last year outside of Kansas, and and we'll get to Kansas in just a second here, but. Northwestern scored 23 points and Ryan Holinsky dropped back 60 times. First of all, I've never seen a Northwestern quarterback drop back to pass 60 times in a game. Um, but the last thing I was expecting was Northwestern to lose with their quarterback throwing for 450 yards. So pretty pretty crazy outcome. Good for Duke. Seems like the Mike Elko uh, regime has gotten things kind of flipped around and moving in the right direction quick. Um I do think we need to touch on this Alabama-Texas game. Yeah, quick. I had that on my list. Go for it. Yeah, well, I I think that there's a couple things to take away from this. Like, Quinn Ewers looked really, really good when he was when he was healthy. Um, turns out it's just an AC joint injury. He'll be back in a couple weeks, probably for the Oklahoma game. So that's good for Texas. I think it honestly probably makes them a co-favorite with Oklahoma for the Big 12 championship, given their performance on yeah. Saturday. Um, but yeah, like Xavier worthy was really, really tough to handle for a talented secondary for Alabama. Um, Kelvin banks, um, the ghost of the former Oregon commitment at tackle looks to be a future first round pick was like unbelievably consistent and dependable against two for like two future first round picks on the edge and Will Anderson and Dallas Turner. That that Texas football team is getting turned around. They're moving in the right direction. What this I also was super played, impressed by their defense. Yeah, their defense played well. One thing though is that we'll see what it looks like when they get Tyler Harrell back from injury. Uh, he's the transfer from Louisville, and he's he's the burner that's going to be the guy who is really depended on by Alabama to take the top off. But as it currently stands, this Alabama receiving core is kind of getting carried by the quarterback. Like they, they really need to find a, somebody. And I think Harold can be that guy to be the, ex, the explosive burner to take the top off. Cause right now it's a, it's a pretty slow and uninspiring group from a dynamism standpoint. Yeah, it certainly is, is not up to the standard of, of the most recent uh, Alabama receiving cores that we've seen over the last half a dozen years. That's for sure. I, I mean, it's pretty tough when like, Almost every receiver that's played a meaningful snap for Alabama over the last four seasons is playing on Sundays right now. I mean, you've got Judy and Waddle and like Rugs, if if not for a very poor decision on his part, um, Devontae Smith, and then Jamison Williams and 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 Mechie. Like that, there's just a long list of first and second round picks um, from from Alabama and the this littering NFL rosters right now at receiver. And it, you could tell that there's been uh, they they might have missed on a class, and and they're missing some of that top end juice that they've been grown accustomed to. Yeah, I mean that was a heck of a football game. I I certainly enjoyed watching that at the tailgate, watching the end of that game. And I think uh, you know Louisiana Monroe is is in for is in for something this week when they travel to Tuscaloosa. Yeah, well here's the deal: like Bryce Young is phenomenal. Yeah, like, like the the fourth quarter of that game was just a clinic on just extraordinarily high level quarterback play. Like he's going to give them a massively long run runway to get the receiving group up to speed because he can carry them in close games when they need him to. And I, I only think that that young secondary for Alabama is going to improve as the year moves forward. So I'm definitely not writing Alabama off. But if you ask me to make a poll. I think Georgia's a better football team today. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they rightly moved up to number one. I, I don't think there was any debate about that, in my opinion, on like the the body of work so far. I mean, you you've got to put Georgia at one. Yeah, well, we have. I, I want to bring this up selfishly. We have the Kansas Jayhawks going on the road and beating West Virginia in Morgantown for their first big 12 win in like, well, they, they beat Texas last year, but like their first road big 12 win in a long time. And they looked really good doing it. And uh, it, it was, it's, it's impressive. And I hope that Lance Leopold doesn't get ripped away from them after the season, because 
I think he's just finally starting to get some traction there, and and they're starting to to produce some pretty good football. And this had everything you want to see in a Big Twelve football game, right? I mean, fifty-five forty-two. That's a that's a Big Twelve football game in overtime. Yeah, but Kansas was running the ball. Kansas, like Kansas, had some explosive plays through the air. Um, I, I think their quarterback played pretty well. I watched I watched the condensed version of this game, um, but the, like they were averaging like their leading rusher averaged seven point one yards per carry. Second back six point three. Like th- they were super efficient on the ground. They look they look really well coached, and I could see why Nebraska has their eyes on Lance uh, Leipold as a potential coach to replace Scott Frost. Um, I just hope for Kansas' sake they can hold on to him because I think that they'll become pretty damn competent if he if he sticks around for a few years. Let's talk about Mario Cristobal and the Miami Hurricanes. Um, you know, put up seventy points in Week One um, against a, a, a nothing team, and this week they played Southern Miss and only won thirty to seven, but were outgained four hundred sixty three to two hundred thirty one. Um, no, I get, take that back. I got that wrong. I flipped that back. But but they they really struggled. The the game was six to three at the half, I believe, and then uh, they kind of pulled away late. But they were getting a lot of boos. Ten three and a uh, half. Ten three. Okay, yeah. Sorry, but they ran a lot of booze in that in Hard Rock Stadium. Oh, sorry. Ten ten seven. Gosh, ten I'm seven. All over the place. Yeah. yeah, boy, ten we're both wrong on that one. Yep. Um, but you know, the fans were the fans were getting discontent with the lack of offense there early in that game. And, and did you did you pay any attention to that one or any takeaways from there? Uh, I caught little bits of it. It looks like kind of a typical Mario Cristobal team first half again. A game like this. Um, they came around, turned it on the second half, leaned on the run game, got things going again. Um, but it wasn't like it was a particularly efficient run game. Like they averaged 3.6 yards per carry on 49 carries. Uh, it, it was. It seemed like a little forceful. Really not sure why they're not leaning on Tyler Van Dyke a little bit more. But um, we'll see how that progresses as they go to College Station to play kind of a reeling A&M team this week. We'll see if A&M can bounce back, but um, A&M's defense is exceptional. Like on the, for whatever we talked about that game and we kind of focused in on their offensive performance, A&M's defense going yeah. up against the team that is, is legitimately pretty good offensively in app state um, only allowed 315 yards on 89 plays. So, that's pretty dang good. That's it's that's hard to hard to beat. I mean, three point five yards per rush attempt on fifty two carries by App State. Um, that the defense kept him in the game, and so if if Mario is stubborn and tries to just batter his way through this A and M defense, I don't think he's going to find much luck. I really think they need to lean on on what is a, a really good quarterback in Tyler Van Dyke if they're going to find find a win in College Station because I think. I think the Aggies are going to be pretty uh, eager to get get the taste out of their mouth that they that they uh, experienced last weekend. Yeah, I think I'm going to take the under on that one. Yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty low scoring game. I got three more on my list: um, Tennessee at Tennessee at Pittsburgh in overtime. Tennessee pulls off the victory, 34-27 against the Pitt Panthers. So Tennessee moves to two and zero. Pitt falls to one and one. That was uh, one of the few ranked games this week. Um, see anything you like from Tennessee? Keaton Slovis for Pitt got got injured um, when he was in the game. They were moving the ball, and he was actually kind of picking Tennessee apart. Uh, Patty came in and wasn't terribly efficient. I, I uh, this was a game where Pat Narduzzi actively coached himself out of a chance to win it, um, which is very Pat Narduzzi thing to do. I, I thought Tennessee was impressive. Um, but I, I really was disappointed in the way that Pitt, Pitt played some, some things situationally there, there down the stretch. Um, given who their quarterback was to continue to play for additional overtimes instead of trying to get a win doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I think Patty was like 9 for 26 for 80 yards or something like that. Like, it, it wasn't a great performance. And so, um, here, I got, I got it pulled up. It's right 9 now. for 20. 9 for 20. Yeah. So... Nine for twenty for seventy nine yards. Like, I I just think that they would have been better off going for the win when they had the opportunity. Yeah, it makes sense. 
Um, you know, Tennessee, a good start for them. You know, they've got a, obviously they got to get into SEC play now and, and see what they can do there, but they're doing what they're supposed to do. And Hooker, Hooker had a, you know, pretty, pretty good game throwing 25 yards, two touchdowns. So. Yeah, no, I think Hooker's fine. It's going to be a really interesting race because with Kentucky beating Florida, um, in the swamp, like who's the third best team in the SEC right now? Yeah, that was the next game I had on my list. You know, Florida after their big win against Utah, you know, got got beat, got beat by Kentucky. You know, at home in the swamp and and in twenty six sixteen, and and Richardson just did not look at all like the player he was against Utah through two well, picks. Yeah, Kentucky just didn't let him be that player. They kept him in the pocket and said, "You're going to beat us one way, and this is how it's going to be." And they. Florida had to try to play with Richardson as a true drop back quarterback and it didn't look very good. <laughs> so yeah. I think I think that's gonna be a problem for Florida going forward because the 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 um blueprint has been set like this is how you can limit Anthony Richardson's effectiveness as a quarterback. And I think that everyone's gonna follow that blueprint. I especially Georgia. I think that game could get pretty ugly. Um because if you can't if you can't find some efficient so, some efficiency downfield through the air from the pocket, like doing all that, all you can do all the half roll, full roll, um, try to get him out on the edge where he can be a runner and a passer stuff you want, it's not going to matter. So we'll, we'll see how Florida continues to develop. Maybe it was just a bad game for Richardson, but this to me is something that could become a serious problem for them moving forward into conference play. Yeah, and and you know Kentucky moves to two and zero, and that's a really a really good win for them, really big win for them to go on the road in the SEC at Florida, a tough place to win, especially in September, and and to pull off that victory, and and that's really setting Kentucky up nice. Yeah, I don't think Kentucky's that good, and so it's like who's the third? Like I I think that Tennessee has to be the second best team in the East. I think so. I think Arkansas might be the actual third best team in the SEC right now, though. Yeah, but their schedule is just going to be so brutal on them. I, I don't know. I, I You're right, though, but I, I, I think those four, right? You got, obviously, you got Georgia and Alabama, but then you got, you know, probably Arkansas and Kentucky are that, you know, second tier, which is quite a bit below the first tier, but I'd probably put those two as the next best two. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch Mississippi State because I think Mississippi State's getting slept on a little bit right now. Um, I know Ole yeah, Miss has struggled a little bit through the early season. It, yeah, I mean they they certainly put away Arizona or Arizona pretty pretty handily there in the second half, and uh, they're also two and zero. And they got Arkansas this this week or coming up later in a few weeks, so we'll see how that plays out. Kind of a funny storyline we didn't touch on with that Arizona game was that um, the defense that Mississippi State runs is the same defense. Uh, Arnett runs the same Rocky Long three three five that San Diego State runs, and so they they played the same defense two two weeks in a row. Uh, when they played obviously at San Diego State week one, and then um, played Mississippi State at home on Saturday, but kind of funny they got the same look two weeks in a row, and that's usually a defense that is kind of hard to prepare for in one week. Interesting. Uh, I, so yeah, I, I got that wrong. Mississippi State goes to LSU this week, so that could be an interesting, uh, interesting game to see. Kind of maybe who's in that third spot in the second or third spot in the in the West Division there. Yeah, I'm taking Mississippi State in that game. What's the line? I don't know the line. I don't have. That. Okay. Um, I we talked about the Kentucky game. So the last one out of my list is Baylor BYU. Um, so that was the other ranked matchup this week. Um, Baylor fell to one one going. To Provo to take on BYU in a game that went to again double overtime, and BYU uh, came away with the victory, twenty six twenty. And obviously BYU will be traveling to Odson to play the Ducks this coming week. What do you think about that game? Baylor just looks like a team that's short on playmakers right now. I mean, they obviously lost some really fast, explosive guys to the to the NFL this last draft class, uh, and they they seem to still be searching for those answers because they're really stout on the front on both sides of the ball. I actually think Blake Shapin's a pretty good quarterback. Uh but they they just didn't really have any reliable playmakers on the outside that they could they could target uh as that game kind of got into crunch time. And that was that was a problem for them despite the fact that they played well enough to win. I I just think that they're missing that little bit of top end juice. Yeah, their 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 offense just didn't seem to 
be very effective at all. And I, I you know, I don't want to take anything away from BYU his defense, but it, to me, it looked more like Baylor's offense just not having, not having it. Uh, they, you know, they averaged three point six yards per play, eighty plays for two hundred eighty nine yards. I mean, that's just not going to cut it against anybody, really. Yeah, but that's that's also like. Good. You have to give credit where credit's due. I think that B- that BYU did a good job. They're executing at a high level, and when I mean, you have a bunch of guys that are all, this is they've all played a lot. Like they returned, I believe, the most production of anybody in college football this season. The top fifteen tackle guys from last year. Um, I don't know that they have a ton of NFL talent, but continuity and uh, continuity of scheme and experience can produce good results too. Yeah. Um, if guys are bought in and doing the right things, so. I, I think that while I agree with you that Baylor looks to be missing a gear on offense that they that they had a year ago, um, I, I think that BYU is playing pretty well on defense. Which is I I know you were not very high on their defense coming into the year, so is that surprising you? No, I think that they're playing like a team that's played together. I I don't think that we'll know a lot more about their defense in two weeks after they play us in Arkansas. Oh, I think that, okay. Yeah, they play Arkansas immediately after playing Oregon. Um, wow, Baylor, Oregon, Arkansas. That's a that's a pretty challenging one, two, three. <laughs> yeah, and they still have to play Notre Dame and USC later on. So, um, they they've got a pretty tough schedule this year. I, I just I think that Oregon is a much more talented team on the outside than Baylor, and I I know we're going to get into that when we do our preview, but I I think that. Two things can be true at the same time with BY, the BYU defense. They're playing at a high level, they're executing, and they did a good job against Baylor, and that might not necessarily translate to the same results playing against a more talented team. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, BYU offensively was only 3-for-14 on third downs, um, only averaged five yards per play themselves. Did not Neither team ran the ball in this game. <laughs> uh, Baylor, 52 rushes. For only 152 yards and BYU 33 rushes for only 83 yards, so um, there was just not a lot of offense to be had in this game all the way around, and and it it really kind of became a battle of defenses. I think I will say this though, situa- situationally down the stretch, Baylor was able to mash on BYU a little bit, and they were they were getting some good efficiency run game in the third and fourth quarters of that game. Um, I, I'm not particularly high on the BYU front. I think that's going to be a pretty market advantage for Oregon. Uh, the, the one thing that, that B Baylor didn't really have the, the guys to do, and again, I don't want to give away our entire preview right now, but the, the way that the Oregon offense has allowed us to isolate our backs and skill players one-on-one in space against linebackers I don't know who from Baylor you would want to isolate in space. And and I think that I think Oregon's got a whole plethora of guys that can make one guy miss and turn a three yard pass into an 18 yard gain. So uh, I'm really excited to see, to see this game get played on Saturday. Me too. And uh, as you said, we'll get to that preview in our, in our next episode, which we'll release on Friday as well. Uh, QB, that's all I had for today. We're about an hour in. You, Any other games you want to talk about or any other comments you want to make on this episode? No, I think I think that's good. Um, overall, I think it was, a, it was a really fun... I was expecting this to be kind of a lame weekend of college football, and the Sun Belt Conference came in, and Randy, Randy, or, like Randy Savage like completely body-slammed this weekend. So... Um, shout out to the Sunbelt Conference for, for giving us a lot of entertainment. Texas Alabama was a much better game than I thought, and uh, it was good for the Ducks to get a, get a win on the board. So uh, let's, let's see how things continue to grow moving forward. Yeah, it was really entertaining sitting at the tailgate because you know, there was kind of not a lot of good football on, and we're watching Texas Alabama, and that game was good. And then all of a sudden, I, I look check on my phone, and I see the score of the Notre Dame Marshall game, and I'm like, oh, yeah, flip over to that, flip over to that, and you know, and then kind of, then you see the Appalachian State game, and it was, it was pretty. It, it did turn out to be a lot better and more exciting and and more entertaining in the Nebraska Georgia Southern game than you know a lot of good storylines that that you would not have predicted coming into the week. So I think week three is where we're going to start, you know, learning a lot more about some teams, Oregon included, um, you know, some other pack. Pac-12 teams, Washington, uh, as an example, Michigan State, 
you know, their, their opponents. I think it's a lot, there's a lot to, I think we're going to know a lot more about teams a week from now than we do now. And, and we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll have a pretty good sample on most teams by, by Sunday morning. So we'll have a better picture of kind of how things will materialize as we move forward into the season. All right. With that, we will sign off. Thanks you all for listening as always. And Andrew, uh, have a great night. You as well, Doug. Thanks to everybody who's uh, been been listening and uh, make sure to give us a five-star review.